I'm Jeff Cohen. Sal Litvak is a film director, but he's also known as the accidental Talmudist. Sal and his wife Nina share Jewish wisdom, humor, and music online with over one million followers. His weekly live show reaches viewers in over 70 countries, so it's no accident that we asked him to join us today to share his story. So let's get started. Sal, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Hey Jeff, thanks for having me. And you can tell just from the intro that we have a million things that we have to get to about you, but our listeners always love to learn a little bit about the person behind the story. So can you just give us a sense of where you were born and raised? Uh, I was born in Chile. I'm actually a third-generation Chilean. My, my grandfather, my father, and I were all born there. My great-grandfather came from Ukraine to Chile about 1905. On my mom's side, uh, she was a survivor, infant survivor of a camp. Uh, she and my grandmother came from Hungary and made their way to Chile in 56. Uh, in 1970, I was five years old uh, when they elected a communist president, Salvador Allende. And uh, the Hungarians in our family had seen that story before. They knew how it ended. So we left Chile and ended up in New York. I grew up in uh, New City, New York, which is in Rockland County, a little bit north of the city. That's the basic childhood. So just that decision by your family to come to the United States, was that the place that they just felt that's where we're going to go? Or were there other places they were considering when they decided they wanted to leave? We were actually on our way to Australia. At that time, there was some kind of a program where, you know, they made it very easy for young professionals to emigrate to Australia. But my grandmother lost her husband uh, in the war. She always lived with us. And her brother was a kind of uh, patriarch of the family, as it were. So when we all left Chile, he went to Spain and he didn't want his sister just so far across the world as Australia. So, um, you know, he had a lot of connections and contacts uh, all over the world, but also in New York. And uh, he recommended to my father, check it out. Uh, my dad's an engineer and, you know, his, his friend owned this big engineering firm. So we just, you know, investigated New York and we ended up staying. And that's how we ended up here. And how would you describe your family from a, a Jewish religious perspective, both in Chile and then when you came to New York? In Chile, like in many places around the world, maybe less so now, but it, you know, it used to be like there really just there was the Orthodox synagogue, and either you went there or you didn't. You know, there there wasn't uh, so many other streams. But when we got to the United States and ended up at the New City Jewish Center, uh, so a big conservative shul. I went to Hebrew school three days a week. Had a bar mitzvah. I was not particularly into it. So after my bar mitzvah, I kind of felt like I was done. I mean, I was in youth group, but that was a little bit more of a party atmosphere, I would say. And it's funny because I always felt spiritual. Like I was very into science fiction. And so I considered it a scientific, rational decision to say that obviously the world and all the stuff in it didn't come into being for no reason. It must have been wanted. So there was a creator. The creator would certainly be interested in the creatures uh, and having a relationship with them. And, and, and I was interested in the creator. And um, it just seemed like, you know, the, the kind of Judaism I was exposed to wasn't so much about that, having a, a personal connection with God. So I didn't go looking for it in other religions, but I was always open to spiritual experiences and practices. You know, in college, I was a rower. And, and that was a very spiritual sport. You know, you work so hard and so long and crazy, crazy 
work ethic, but there were moments, you know, when all eight guys were just in perfect sync and it was like something other was going on. I, I got into drumming and Grateful Dead shows and meditation, you know, kind of pursuing these spiritual experiences. And it just didn't occur to me until much later that, well, yeah, Judaism is definitely about that. <laughs> and I want to get into the whole college experience, but just before that, I want to backtrack to when you were talking about your family and going to a conservative shul that obviously I know that one since we grew up in the same town. What were you doing within the home? Was was there Hanukkah? Was there Yom Kippur? Like, which holidays were you celebrating? My mother and my grandmother uh, lit Shabbos candles, and, and we had a Friday night dinner. I mean, we, we definitely had a Shabbos dinner. There's it, nothing elaborate. We didn't sing. We didn't go to shul on Friday nights. But, you know, my dad would say, Bray prayer Goffin over the wine and a mozi over the bread. I don't think we washed, <laughs> we had, but we had the wine and the bread. And, and But definitely that memory of my mother and my grandmother lighting the candles, she had one of the few possessions they, they hung on to from Hungary was kind of an elaborate silver uh, candelabra. Again, we went to Shul on, on high holidays, and we had a Seder every year. Sounds like a uh, typical family that goes to New City Jewish Center, so it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> The conservative upbringing. But there's a phrase on your website that you used to describe yourself as a child, this phrase, Jutino, the combination of Jewish and the, and the chili background. So did you feel like a, an outsider? Because I know New City and my friends were like born and bred in America. So I don't know if you had an accent or, or what your family was speaking in the home, but did you feel like an outsider or you felt connected to the community? I mean, I definitely felt connected to my friends, but I always felt like an outsider. I, I always felt like we were kind of the weirdos. Now, part of it, I'm sure, that contributed to that. I had bright red hair and a lot of it, a, a genuine red Jufro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, the Jufro was, it was like a, a burst of freedom. You know, until my bar mitzvah, I was the brush over, you know, right. <laughs> like brush it neatly in the morning. And five minutes after I left the house, it was just a mess. And then finally for my bar mitzvah, I was allowed to, uh, you know, just like use a hair pick and let it go out and curly and big. It was the 70s. And um, between being kind of tall and thin and, you know, bozo brain, you know, with the big red hair, and, uh, and yeah, my parents were just different than everybody else's and we did slightly different things. So I always felt like a bit of a weirdo. But somehow you made the rowing team. So you were referencing the college years and I saw in your bio different schools that you went to, but I'll let you tell the story. So as you were getting into those late teen years and thinking about what you wanted to do, where did, where did you go to school and what did you think you were going to be? From the time we moved to America when I was five years old, it was our family dream <laughs> that I would go to Harvard. <laughs> It's like my parents were new to this country. They, when they first got here, like, okay, what's the thing for a kid to do? Go to Harvard and be a doctor. It sounded good to me, so that was the, the goal. And uh, I, I was fortunate. I did well in school. I had some interesting extracurriculars. I was actually into bicycle racing uh, at one point, uh, and I wrote my college essay about that. And, uh, you know, it's much harder these days. I don't know if I would have got into Harvard today, but I, I did then. And it was wonderful. I, I, I'm so grateful. It was an amazing experience for me, uh, not just being at a you know, prestigious institution like that, but the people there are fascinating. I mean, they really select an interesting student body, form great friendships. And then when I got there, I said, you know, rowing sounds like a real Harvard thing to do. They recruited the sort of larger guys. I'm 6'1". I ended up being one of the smallest guys on the rowing team. 
but uh, you know, in the fall of freshman year, 128 guys started the crew team, and uh, by the end of senior year in our class, you know, there were maybe 10. But I, I did it the whole way. I was a, a varsity rower. And uh, it's an incredibly consuming activity. It's not, uh, there's no season of, of rowing. It's year-round, two, three, four hours a day. The, the only guys we had respect for in terms of that they worked as hard or even harder than us was the swimmers. But everyone else, you know, we outworked. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that gives me a sense of the extracurricular side. What were you studying and thinking that you were going to be post-graduation? So I was thinking I was going to be a doctor, you know, it, it, again, the family plan. And, uh, and I had a, my great-grandfather that I, I, I never knew my grandfathers. Both of them uh, had died. My, my father's father died young of a stroke. My mother's father died in uh, the Dachau concentration camp. Uh, but my great-grandfather in Chile was a doctor. And so it sounded good. Yeah, we have a family tradition. I'll be a doctor. So I was a pre-med, I was a biochem major at Harvard, but really it was just to be pre-med and there were a lot of pre-meds at Harvard. And so you take these huge classes with a thousand people in them, all who want to go to medical school. They're all competitive enough that they got into Harvard and now they're competing against each other. And the classes are graded on a bell curve, which is a little unfair. And I just was not succeeding. I, I, you know, I was just very average and I wasn't used to being average. And whereas I really liked science, in high school, in college, I found myself much more drawn to this sort of core curriculum courses that you had to take, just choosing from other areas. And I was taking uh, literature classes, English classes. And uh, I was not only enjoying them more, I was doing well at them. And I thought, you know what, maybe, the, you know, my assumptions about myself were wrong. And uh, so I switched from biochem to English, uh, which, like I said, I really enjoyed it. And uh, told my parents, don't worry, I'm still going to medical school. I've <laughs> completed these uh, pre-med requirements uh, pretty much. And, uh, but then I realized, you know what? I never really chose that, and I don't think it's for me. Uh, so now that I wasn't going to medical school in our family, that means you're going to law school. <laughs> <laughs> Those are the only two possibilities. The only two possibilities. <laughs> um, but this idea of having a big education... Uh, it actually makes a lot of sense coming from our background. And I think it's a very Jewish thing. And it, it's not just because we prize learning. It's also because you never know when you're going to be a refugee. And, uh, you know, you, you need to have portable assets. And uh, one of those is an education because, you know, God forbid you, you know, wash ashore naked on some foreign land. You're going to be able to put together a life if you have, you know, some know-how and, and a top-notch education. So uh, I ended up uh, going to NYU Law, and thank God that happened because I was in the village in New York City, and, um, you know, I did everything I had to do to get that law degree, but I quickly realized, yeah, renting out my brain, you know, to do due diligence for big corporations, not really for me. Maybe litigation would have been more interesting, but I just realized while I was in law school that I needed to do a deep dive on who am I, what am I, what am I trying to do in this world. I did a lot of journaling. I, I was like this law student by day, poet warrior by night, <laughs> <laughs> going out to weird after hours clubs. And, you know, you just find me in some weird place in the middle of the night in New York City with my journal uh, writing in it. 
And uh, I, you know, I don't say I, I meant that I really was writing and doing an exploration, but it was, I must say it was a good prop. Sooner or later, a pretty girl would ask me, what are you writing? Uh-huh. <laughs> no one else was doing that. So that's that why you were doing it. <laughs> but, um, you know, that led to uh, doing some performance art shows down there, you know, downtown New York, which were, you know, rated interesting. <laughs> And I realized, uh, you know, if I'm going to do something in the arts, it's going to have to be disciplined and actually, you know, have some promise to make a living through it. Um, and it was right. So I thought I would write novels. And the, my heroes, I guess, at that time were novelists. And, uh, but at that same time, a friend of mine went to film school. And I was like, film school? What's that? It's like, what do you mean, what is that? You go there to learn how to make movies. And it, it had never been on my radar. It just didn't exist you know, I, I never knew, like, like I, if you asked me who are the movie directors, I would have said, I guess, children of celebrities and <laughs> former movie stars. Um, but uh, now I saw that there was a path to do this. I already had some loans from, you know, college and law school. So of the top film schools, the only one that was a state school and thus a little bit more affordable was UCLA. And they were taking 18 out of 700 applicants to their uh, director's program, the MFA program. And I just said, okay, God, you know, if, uh, if I'm meant to do this, you'll show me by <laughs> letting me beat these odds to get in. Uh, and if not, I'll write novels. And uh, thank God I got in and I, you know, landed here in LA and started making movies. And I instantly felt like, thank God I didn't miss this. I'm home. I'm in my element. Uh, so let's go back now for a moment. You have Harvard, NYU, UCLA. And so I see how your career moved from, I'm going to be a doctor. No, I'm going to be a lawyer. No. And now I'm getting into film. What role is religion playing during this time of your life? So like at Harvard, <laughs> yeah, it's very little. Uh, although I was always conscious of, of, of being a Jew and a proud Jew. It was actually during that period, 1985, that I went to Israel for the first time as a rower. I, I, I tried out for the uh, Maccabea games, uh, the, the U.S. Maccabea rowing team. Uh, and so at the age of 20, I was, you know, represented my country as, as a rower in Israel. And so that was a good connection. And I actually hosted seders every year. But to me, what was important about the seder, the key thing was telling the story. So other than that, it wasn't much of a Seder. We had it in a Mexican restaurant one year and a sushi restaurant another year. And please, God, forgive me. Our senior year, we had it in a cheeseburger place. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but a bunch of Jews came and uh, we told the story of, of entering and leaving Egypt and, and that God redeemed us. And, uh, and I also took a class called The Bible is Literature. And, uh, and that was interesting because I read the whole Bible. For the first time and encountered all these stories that they did not teach us in uh, Hebrew school, some of which were very disturbing, like Genesis 34, the, the Dina and Shechem story. And I couldn't say that that story makes the Jews look good. And uh, I didn't have a rabbi in my life to talk about it with, but I, I was genuinely perturbed and curious and wanted to talk about it. So we're at such a good point in the interview now to start thinking about your career taking off and also how your exploration of Judaism starts to take off. So kind of parallel path those as you realize, okay, I'm going to get into film, but also like in getting to know you and learning more about you, see that Judaism starts to take a more prominent role in your life. So how do those two things start to emerge? 
You know, there was a moment uh, like shortly after college, I was at a wedding and it was a beautiful outdoor venue. It was actually an interfaith wedding, a Jewish boy marrying a non-Jewish girl, a friend of mine, and they found a rabbi to perform this service. And then during the reception, you know, I saw him sort of sitting by himself, you know, under this towering eucalyptus tree with these huge ravens high above in the trees cawing. And uh, I walked up and I said, uh, Rabbi, may I ask you a question? Sure. So I sat down next to him and I said, uh, this story, uh, Genesis 34, uh, you know, Dina, you know, has some kind of interaction with this prince of Shechem. And even if we say, it, it doesn't say that specifically, but let's assume that what it means is that he raped her. And the brothers are infuriated and say, you know, this is a, an, an attack on the Jewish people, as it were. So it would make sense to execute that boy, that man, but that's not what happened. They ended up executing all the men of that city, taking the women and children as slaves and leaving a ghost town and moving on. And like, how does this make the Jews look good? And literally, as I reached the end of my question, how does this make the Jews look good? One of those giant ravens in the giant eucalyptus tree dropped a massive turd on my shoulder. <laughs> Splat. And the rabbi looked at it and says, well, there's your answer. <laughs> got up and walked away. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny now. Uh, it's less funny then. <laughs> Quoting the Godfather, bada bing, all over my nice Ivy League suit. But what I got from it is like, oh, I guess rabbis don't have answers to tough questions. And uh, it was real opportunity missed. And uh, it would be, you know, almost a decade before I really connected with Judaism. And so, yeah, so that was like, like during law school. So then law school, I actually practiced law for a year and a half uh, in New York just to kind of finish out the deal while I was waiting to get into UCLA. Came here, started making movies. And, uh, and then when really changed uh, during film school, uh, two things happened. I met my wife, Nina. She grew up with like even less religion in her house than I did. I mean, like none. Like they're the only... Her parents are Jewish, but the only Jewish thing about their home was no Christmas tree. Right. Where did she grow up? In, uh, in Soho, in New York City, downtown. I used to hang out in the restaurant, like, below her house while I was living in, the, in downtown New York. But I didn't know her then. I met her out here in L.A. Uh, she had come out to join the movie business. Uh, she was a screenwriter. She had worked as an executive at Disney and done all kinds of jobs. But we actually met randomly on New Year's Eve uh, in a restaurant uh, bar called El Coyote. And that year, uh, you know, we, we were both at a stage in life where I guess uh, we, were, we were open to it, just become a little bit more curious about our backgrounds. And then the big change for me was my grandmother died that year. So like I mentioned, we were always very close with her. And then in 1997, I got the call. My parents were living in Bethesda, Maryland at that time. And they said, come home. You know, she had, she had a melanoma that metastasized. And I was at my grandmother's bedside when she took her last breath. But it utterly moved me, and it, it, was, it was so real. And when I got back to L.A., I just wanted to honor her in some way, and, and this thing that had happened. And, and so I went to a big conservative synagogue to say Kaddish and say a prayer for her. And I, I went to the right place that day. The rabbi's a, a gifted teacher, pretty famous. He's on TV a lot, Rabbi Wolpe. And I was just like, wow, this thing I've been looking for in other places, maybe I should try my own backyard. Maybe I uh, 
you know, dismissed Judaism in the way that somebody has sushi from the supermarket. That's all they've ever tried to say. Yeah, sushi's no good. Like, <laughs> yeah, you haven't had great sushi. <laughs> so uh, I started learning and taking classes. And LA has its share of wonderful rabbis and teachers. You know, everybody I was learning from would mention the Talmud. I said, okay, well, clearly the Talmud is full of wisdom. I don't really know what it is. I don't know how to access it. It's just too big and intimidating. I guess it's not for me. Maybe in my next lifetime, I'll merit to, uh, you know, go to yeshiva and be able to access this kind of stuff. And so many times I was in that store, saw those books, was drawn to them, said, I guess it's not for me, walked away. And uh, so this was kind of a multi-year process. But in uh, 2005, I was in that store had that same thought process, started to walk away, and something stopped me. And I said, this is ridiculous. They're just books. I was an English major at Harvard. I went to law school. I went to film school. My wife and I are, you know, book people. Our house is full of books, bibliophiles. There must be a book one of the Talmud. I'll just get that and see what it's like. Nearest one table of contents. Okay, book one of the Talmud is Bruchus. Take the brachas to the counter, and the kid at the register says, ah, you're doing dafyomi. So I say, what's dafyomi? He looked at me, and he lowered his glasses down to the tip of his nose to sort of look over his glasses at me, as if to say, are you kidding? <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, dafyomi must be a code. If you don't know the code, you're not allowed to read the book. <laughs> and now he's got to get rid of me without embarrassing me. This is so awkward. And he said, Dafyomi means page of the day. It's a program where people around the world read the entire Talmud on the same schedule. One page a day. It takes seven and a half years. And today is day one. That's why he asked me. I mean, I happen to buy book one of the Talmud on day one of a seven and a half year cycle. <laughs> Uh, so I said, okay, God, I get it. I'm doing Dafyomi. I didn't know what I was taking on. I mean, it's an hour, a good solid hour a day, every day for seven and a half years. I mean, seven days a week. It's Yom Kippur, do your Daf. You're getting married, do your Daf. You're directing a movie, do your Daf. You're sick, do your Daf. And it's a huge commitment, but I felt like God put the book in my hand, so I had to stay with it. So wait, when you're starting to read these books... You're going to be learning about things in Judaism that you obviously weren't doing growing up, laws and, and rules and different things like that. As you're learning them, are you starting to think, oh, should my wife and I be adopting some of this stuff in our life? Or are you just reading it like it's a book and you're just trying to gain knowledge? It's definitely a combination, you know, of, of those things. So by then, we had joined a, a shul and a community, and, and we were certainly going to synagogue every Saturday. It was a very unusual shul. I would describe it as reform Hasidic <laughs> here in okay. LA. A lot of celebrities went there too. It was, it was reform, but the rabbi, very gifted teacher and speaker, who's very interested in Hasidus. And, and so he was teaching a lot of Hasidus, even to a group of people that was uh, halachically doing very little. But at least we were gathering to learn every Shabbos. But yeah, after a while we were realizing we, we were becoming a little bit more religious. When we realized that we were, you know, doing more mitzvahs than, you know, than the clergy, we said, okay, this is not the show for us. And at this point, we, now we had kids, little kids, and we're looking for a school for them. 
so we decided that uh, Pressman Academy here in L.A., which is associated with a conservative synagogue, uh, and which also teaches the kids fluent Hebrew, like half the day is in Hebrew, and they're going to come out of that school speaking Hebrew. So that attracted us, uh, and the kids did that K through 8. But during those years, we were becoming more and more religious, so that by the time they were going to high school, we just weren't conservative Jews anymore. And they didn't resist too much when we sent them to an Orthodox high school. And uh, yeah, I mean, today we're definitely from Yids and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the Gabi and a pretty from a little shul here in Hancock Park. You've done such a nice job of explaining the Jewish progression. Let's now go to your career and some of the movies that you've made. And you referenced When Do We Eat Before? And so our producer, Gary, has a clip ready from that movie. So we know it's about a, a Seder that goes horribly wrong and then ultimately right. But let's hear the clip and then we can break down what's happening in the scene. Okay. We're in the desert. We've just left Egypt. We don't know where we're going. But we're here now, and God is near. He's wasting our time. I think he's cool. Dad, there's lots of sides of him that you don't see. Tonight, he's Moses, the most important person in the story, but he's never mentioned in the Haggadah because he's the one leading us out of Egypt now. Dad is Moses, and I think he's finally feeling God. You know what, sweetie? We need to move on. <laughs> okay, so what I didn't set up in that clip is that the son does a little something to the father that creates that dynamic that's going on in the scene. So I'll let you share what's happening there. Yeah, the dad is tripping his brains out on a combination <laughs> of LSD and ecstasy. Yeah, so it's a very uh, dysfunctional family comedy uh, in, in which there's, uh, you know, there's four kids who are actually five. The good son is, is a Balshuva, you know, who had a financial career that imploded. And, and now, uh, you know, he looks full on Hasidic. And the wicked son is a daughter who's a sex therapist who actually does tremendous good for the people that need, um, you know, her therapy. The simple son is the stoner who's, you know, on a regimen because he got caught a few times and he's getting drug tested and he just feels like his family's so oppressing him. And his plan is to, uh, you know, to take this, this drug just so that he himself can get through this boring Seder. But when the dad yells at him, he gets the idea, you know what, I'll just slip it to dad. <laughs> and, uh, and so the dad, who's a very kind of authoritarian, you know, hardcore dad, uh, is suddenly in this very different space than he's ever been in. And it's happening during a Seder. And he starts sort of ingesting the, the symbols and traditions of the Seder and processing them in his mind into a genuine going out of Egypt experience that, as, as the older son is saying in the clip, is happening not 3,000 years ago, but right now. And we have one more clip from this movie that I want to share where the mom, who's played by Leslie Ann Warren, she comes to a big revelation a little bit later in the movie. So let's hear that clip. You want to talk about pharaohs? You're my pharaoh. All of you. I've been a slave to this family for years, 30 years. I've been feeding you and dressing you and driving you and trying to 
keep the peace, and I've so failed at that. Trying to make a loving, presentable family of all of you, and I've failed at that, too. So, I'm not sure when I'll be back. Just... No, 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 no. Mom. Mom, 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 mom. Mom, don't say that stuff. It's almost dinner. You made it. Mom, we'll love it. No, I'm no. sorry. And mom, I'm really sorry about what I said. I'm really no, sorry. No, Yes, I am. Daddy, please say something. Dad, say something. What can I say? She's right. No. Seven minutes. Okay, mom, 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 mom. So what I hear there is that in a Jewish family, the mom really is the anchor. And she finally like says something that gets everybody to realize the craziness of what's going on around her. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a fun movie to, to conceive and to, and to make. It was not a good idea for an independent <laughs> movie to have, you know, 11 smart, opinionated characters, which means seven smart, opinionated actors in every scene. That's actually a very difficult movie to shoot. You know, we hoped that it would become the Jewish It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, thank God it did. We got very good reviews, but a few from key places like the New York Times and the Washington Post offended reviews. Like, like that we had done and said something offensive, which was weird because like the audience didn't feel that way. In every audience, and I traveled with the movie very much, on the, especially on the festival circuit, there would always be like, you know, there was 100 people in the audience. Let's say there were two or three older Jews who were offended. You know, why? Because we showed Jews behaving badly. You know, we, we showed kind of the dirty laundry of the Jewish people. But what the movie says is that we all have that dirty laundry. Every culture has it. But when Jews behave badly, we actually have this incredible, highly evolved technology 3,000 years of it, called the Torah, <laughs> the written and oral <laughs> Torah, that gives us tools to deal with our dysfunction, with our damage, with the harm we've caused others and to ourselves. And so it's not that the whole family is transformed in one night, but because the dad, is his, his whole head is so shifted and he's so far out of you know, where, where he normally is, it creates an environment and a, you know, where, where, where healing becomes possible. And everybody makes a little bit of progress in that night. And the movie was very well received, but a few people were offended by it. And so the theatrical run didn't go that far. You, know, you need a New York Times review for a, a little independent movie. And uh, you know, we were devastated. We thought we failed. And you know, the movie didn't make a lot of money. And no one saw it. That's what we thought happened. So years later, something else happened. I guess we should mention that I became the accidental Talmudist. All right, so I did Dafyomi starting in 2005. 2012, I completed Shas. I finished my journey uh, through the Talmud. And I thought I should tell my story because maybe one other guy would hear it and say, you know what, you don't have to go to yeshiva and be a rabbi to do Dafyomi. If, if Sal can do it, anyone can do it. Uh, I called my friend David Suisa, who was a big fan of When Do We Eat, which had come out uh, in 2006. And he's the publisher of the Jewish Journal out here. We went to lunch. I told him that story about uh, my journey through the Talmud. And I said, if I wrote that up, would you publish it as an article in the Jewish Journal? He said, Sal, that's one of the most amazing stories I ever heard. That's a cover story <laughs> for the Jewish Journal. But don't you have more to say than will fit in the one article? I said, yeah. He said, so make it a blog. 
You know, so it, so it got launched. The Accidental Talmudist was launched as a cover story of the Jewish Journal in August of 2012 and simultaneously as a blog for the Jewish Journal. And if you have a blog, you should have a Facebook page to promote it. And it was that Facebook page that really took off. I know how to communicate. I know how to entertain. And so we just shared something every day from the tradition that we found beautiful. Facebook was good because... You know, one day it's a mission from Pirkei Avos, another day it's a Jewish joke, another day it's something from Jewish history. And it was whatever we wanted, you know, the format was up to us. And something about the way we were doing it, it just drew an audience. And completely unexpectedly, this thing just grew and grew and grew. And, and you know, to where we have a million followers in 70 countries. Now I teach Dafyomi since 2020. Uh, so I, I do an online class every day at 6 p.m. Pacific. I have a thousand students uh, learning Dafyomi with me. And, uh, and at any rate, you know, after I'd been doing that for a few years, I said, you know, maybe this audience would be interested to know that I once directed a movie about Passover uh-huh. Seder, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, not only funny and, and, and heartwarming, but actually, without hitting people over the head with it, contains a lot of, of Torah and Hasidus. I particularly use the Breslov Haggadah uh, in forming some of the ideas there. And so we sort of shared the trailer of the movie and said, you know, by the way, we made this movie and it's available on uh, Amazon Prime and Apple Movies. And like instantly, hundreds of comments started coming. You made that movie? We love that movie. We watch that movie every year. And our movie had become The Jewish It's a Wonderful Life. It's an ensemble cast. I, I, I mean, I discovered Max Greenfield. He became a big star. It was Jack Klugman's last movie. Uh, the dad is Michael Lerner, Les Stan Warren, etc. And the movie, in the long run, has done tremendous good. And there's thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who watch When Do We Eat every year as Passover approaches. It's funny, it's uplifting, and you learn something. And it's like a tradition for so many Jews around the world to watch When Do We Eat as Pesach is approaching. And that number of people grows every year. And, you know, we just love that people are enjoying the movie year after year and new people discovered every year. But then it surprises me that given where all this is headed and how prominent Judaism is in everything that you're doing with Accidental Talmudist and this movie, that the next thing is about Abraham Lincoln. feels like it comes out of left field. So how do we, how do we get to that? Right. Because, in fact, it was there first. Before we made When Do We Eat, and I came up with a whole new way of making a movie called Cinecollage, uh, where we shot the actors in front of a huge green screen, and then we uh, created all of the environments, all the sets of the movie, from vintage photographs from the Civil War era. And uh, when the dust settled, we made Saving Lincoln, which depicts Abraham Lincoln leading the nation through the Civil War. And when Spielberg finally made his Lincoln movie, uh, which, by the way, when we announced we were moving forward, one day later, they announced that the long gestating Spielberg Lincoln is now moving forward. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it was because of us, but (laughs) who knows? At any rate, the movie Spielberg, I love Steven Spielberg. I love his movies. I mean, you know, he's an amazing director. But he misfired with his Lincoln movie because his Lincoln movie is The Civil War is Over. And Abraham Lincoln is twisting arms in Congress to get a law passed. Now, it's an important law, but if you're going to make the Lincoln movie of the generation and you're Steven Spielberg and it's on you to do that and you had 
the incredible performance of Daniel Day-Lewis, I feel like you should really show Abraham Lincoln leading the nation through the Civil War. Right. <laughs> Not, you know, after the war's kind of over. his legacy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, what can I say? I love Steven Spielberg, but that movie is boring. It's just a boring movie. And if you want to have a, 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 you know, a roller coaster ride, an emotional roller coaster ride, and experience what it was like to be Lincoln, this gentle man charged with sending hundreds of thousands of boys to die in defense of their country while people are trying to kill him. So, yeah, you should see Saving Lincoln. And I'm just going to ask you, I know you have one more movie in the pipeline, Guns and Moses. So just give me a quick sense of that before we wrap the interview. I want to give you a chance. Yeah, so now our, our next movie, we're, we are back on a Jewish topic, uh, and uh, we were determined to make the kind of movie that we really love to watch, which is thrillers. I, I love thrillers, and this is a, a movie about a string of murders in a high desert town in Southern California that appear to be hate crimes against Jews. It starts with a murder at a synagogue gala event you know, where the honoree who's making the new building possible for the local Chabad rabbi who's been holding services in a strip mall, and now they're finally going to have a little building. And the guy goes up to make his speech, and he's murdered by a sniper in front of 200 witnesses. Uh, they don't catch the sniper immediately, but they find the murder weapon in the trunk of a neo-Nazi's car who has said hateful things to the Jews. Case closed. But the rabbi is like, this doesn't smell right. Like he actually met this neo-Nazi and he's not a neo-Nazi. He's like a troubled kid who says offensive things, but he's not a murderer. And since the cops won't investigate, the rabbi becomes the detective. Uh, more murders follow. The rabbi has to get himself armed because he is uncovering a very sinister conspiracy and powerful set of people. And, uh, and it'll be you know, the rabbi and his ragtag group of friends up against, you know, these, these hardcore criminals. Um, and, uh, and as much as it's, you know, kind of a fun thriller type of setup, it happens to have a rabbi in the center. But it's really about a kind of, you know, reluctant amateur detective thrust right. into, you know, life and death situation. But it also plays very authentically because tragically we live in a time where there are attacks on Jews and not... Every synagogue, you know, has the resources to afford armed guards. So for small shuls, there's an organization, at least here in California, called Maganam. We're expanding. Uh, but the organization trains volunteers like me to receive, like, extensive training from real elite teachers. Uh, and then we become licensed security guards. And I carry a firearm in shul. I mean, you know, daily and on Shabbos, uh, I, I have a gun on my hip. And... Uh, you know, and, and we don't do that lightly. So, like, it's a lot of training that we go through. Uh, and what I learned in that training, the type of training, is what the rabbi is going to be going through in the movie so that his shooting is, is, is legit. It's authentic. Right. God, wow, we just covered three, like, totally different movies with totally different themes. So I have a pretty good sense of the arc of where you're going in your career. So my last question for you is what's next for you in terms of your Judaism? Well, I, you know, I pray to God every day that I should come closer to him and, uh, and help my family and my community and the world come closer. I think that there's never been such a thirst for meaning in the world. And that process of coming closer, we're each of us here on a mission, you know, and if you don't know what your mission is, then your mission is to ask, what is my mission? And, and, and to ask that question is to start to get an answer. And then it's always gonna involve becoming the best version of yourself. 
for the sake of yourself, your family, your community. There's, there's a lot of work we can all do, a lot of good that we can all do, but it starts by making those improvements and changes in ourselves that we know we need to make. And if you ask God for help, you'll get it. So ask. <laughs> <laughs> I think all of our listeners are going to be asking after this interview. So I just want to say what a fascinating life that you've had. And I can't believe it started in my hometown of New City, New York, which is such a, a cool thing. And I just yeah. want to say on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.